Hi, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Sternova Strategic Edge, a bi-weekly audio business program where we explore emerging strategies in strategic innovation from the edges of the business ecosystem. In this shorter companion program to our bi-weekly Stranova interview podcast, we explore the implications of some of the newest strategic trends in business from all over the world and present them every other week, alternating with our regular interview series. So, thanks for tuning in, and let's get started with this episode of Stranova Strategic Edge. For those of you who've listened to past episodes of our mini-casts, you know we typically lead in with an audio clip that is relevant to the topic at hand. Though the audio this time may have invoked what we're looking for, it was a bit of a challenge, because the topic this time is about a new approach to computing, which in turn comes from very recent understandings of how the mind works. And the mind, unfortunately, is far more silent about what it does than are most aspects of our world, and it comes without a soundtrack. It is, however, making itself heard now, and with that begins a story that started a few million years ago, and is only now just making its impacts known on the strategic edges of the computing business ecosystem. To understand that story best, and the strategic innovations that are emerging, let's first consider our current situation, which perhaps we can think of as literally only yesterday. In the computing industry, we are well into many years of microprocessor release cycles and have come to rely on the reality of those cycles as we design our computer systems and the software that runs on them. We have grown a bit sloppy, if I can use the word, allowing far more complex software code than maybe it needs to be to do the necessary job to emerge, somehow requiring as much as 40 million lines of software code just to run the 2002 released Windows XP operating system on your computer, when back in 1995, the initial Windows 95 only required an estimated 4 million lines of code to run. In seven years then, we grew the code size by about 10 times. So one should get down on their knees and bless Moore's Law, the famous theoretical prediction that the complexity of microprocessors will double every 18 months. Just for fun, let's think about that one step further. If we assume that there were at least four of those 18-month cycles between the final release of Windows 95 and the first release of Windows XP, that means we have four doubling cycles of the microprocessor there. And, while I know this isn't totally fair to the analysis, one could roughly say that the microprocessors have become 2 times 2 times 2 times 2, or 16 times as fast in the time the raw code that needs to run on these processors went up by 10 times in size. Whew, you say. Well, no wonder it doesn't seem like things are running that much faster than in the old days. And you can increase speeds by having multiple processors in the same machine as well, right? So we really are ahead, aren't we? Well, that's the old brute force approach to things in the computing world. And, quite frankly, it's true in many areas of technical innovation, where the very first inventions may indeed do something dramatically different and new. But then, instead of continuing to come up with truly major new concepts in how we do things, we simply pile on more of the same thing to get to the next generation. 
Computing is actually a great example of this, in that in the early days of computing, way back when the functionality of computers was limited, both with respect to speed and memory storage capacity, you had to be somewhat clever to find ways to get your programs to run quickly and in a small memory space. Instead of writing specialized subroutines for each specific nuance of your computer program needs, for example, you'd write a more generic one that could be called upon again and again for use throughout the program. That was, in fact, one of the reasons that computers often could do little more than just add and subtract quickly in the earliest days, with multiplication being modeled as multiple adding cycles and division as multiple subtraction cycles. The good news was that these kind of computers were easy to build. I, in fact, even built a binary computer that had mechanical flip-flops that could switch between a zero value and a one value when I was 12. You set the program to be calculated by entering the value of a first number by rotating the mechanical flip-flops appropriately as a binary representation of the number, then enter a second number in a similar way, and then set two flip-flops which determine which of four operations you wanted to have the first number do on the second number, with the four choices being addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. The computer was then propped up on end, and marbles were allowed to flow through the flip-flops, and the mechanical cycles of the marble drops acted as a single cycle of the computer clock in modern terms. And when all the marbles were gone, the answer to the operation was reflected in a column of answer mechanical flip-flops. The speed of the computer was a function of how easily the flip-flops moved mechanically, as well as how fast the marbles could make their way down through the mechanical tunnels and off the flip-flops. In answer to a question I'm sure many of you might wonder about, yes, I was a handful to my parents, then and for quite some time, in fact. We've come a long way since I was playing with marbles, of course, but effectively, we've really only gone through two major cycles in computing technology. The first was creating the equivalent of my computer that ran on marbles with what is known as Reduced Instruction Set Computing, or RISC for short. In that concept, the computer chips used to do the calculations were designed only to do a narrow range of functions, but could do them very fast. And programs using these computer chips were written to model more complex calculations, such as trigonometric formulae, square roots, and exponentials, using the limited set of chip functions as their toolbox. These sort of computers still exist today, by the way, and in fact are often used in the fastest of supercomputers, so don't sell the solution short. The second solution was what became known as complex instruction set computing. In implementing the risk approach above, it was soon determined that, for certain types of computing, having to constantly call the many small subroutines in the risk computing was actually slowing down the overall computing process. So the logical solution was to add more complex subroutines that could actually do things like the trigonometric or exponential function calculations, for example, in the computer chips themselves, and then make those things run fast. This second approach, which went back as far as the 1960s hyper-successful IBM System 360 and DEX-VAX computer lines, has grown into the dominant way that computing is done today both on the biggest and most powerful computers, as well as the Mac and PC desktop and laptop computers, using Motorola's PowerPC chips and the Intel family of computer microprocessors. So, let's mix this together. We found ways to make microprocessors do more functions than ever before, and we're increasing the speed with which they do them at a rate of two times every 18 months. If you add that dense computer memory storage is getting cheaper through a variant of Moore's Law, then no wonder we can get sloppy about all this software writing business, 
and still make computers that are indeed truly doing more for us and doing it faster and faster. The problem with this is that, as we've grown to understand not just what computers are doing for us, but also what they could do for us in our world, this rate of improvement in the computing world is less than we'd like it to be. And this is, in part, because we are looking for ways for every level of the computing spectrum, from the lowest cost devices all the way up to supercomputers, to do more, and often on the very fringes of the most difficult parts of computing, truly intelligent robotics and human-like function. So, you might ask, is there another way of looking at this whole computing paradigm that doesn't just require faster processors and maybe slightly more efficient code? To do this, modern researchers from several areas have turned to a source of inspiration as a model that many had actually written off as too complex a device to emulate. That model was the mind. To understand how miraculous it was the leap to look at the living mind as a clue to how to redesign computing, you have to realize that past attempts to consider this basically just gave up so early in the process as to almost forever poison that path for further exploration by other scientists. We rightfully look at the brain as an incredible creation, the product of millions of years of evolution, continuous testing, and, effectively, market competition to produce the brains we have today. It stores so many memories, has such a truly astonishing capability to connect those memories, and calculate solutions to a wide variety of problems that we've almost given up on copying it because achieving its power seems beyond our reach, at least until the juggernaut of Moore's Law allows for powerful enough microprocessors to exist that can duplicate its function. As in many other similar situations, however, while the majority may give up on the search and just keep making stuff that works the same way it always has, only faster, a small contingent of people has continued to study how the mind works with the goal of unearthing some very clever secrets. And yes, folks, what they have discovered will change the way I believe computing will be done in the future in many spaces. And you know the funny thing? We may even find that going back to those simpler reduced instruction set approaches to computing may actually enable a much faster computer to operate in the future as a result of what these people have discovered. Now, rather than just dumping the solution here, I wanted to give you the opportunity to feel a sense of that aha feeling that some researchers felt themselves when they discovered this. So to get you started, let's consider something that does involve the brain that all of you have done in some form or another. And that is to move your arms or legs to catch something that was either dropped or thrown at you. If you're playing tennis, for example, you see the ball coming at you from across the net from your opponent, you run to meet it, move your racket into position, and wham, hopefully, you hit the ball in just the right way to not only get it back over the net, but in exactly the most difficult position for your opponent to reach. So, how does the mind work to help you do this? Probably, you say, it sees the ball coming, estimates velocity, gravity, and other things, calculates where it might go, figures out where you want to aim your stroke, tells your legs and arms to move into the proper position, and then directs you to hit the ball all in only a few seconds. Yes, you say, there are a lot of calculations that are involved in this, but hey, this is the big, fast brain computer we've been working on for the past few million years, right? So we have the power and the technology to make it happen. The only problem with all this is that the brain is actually an incredibly sluggish computer on a serial basis. As brain researchers know, neuron-to-neuron -neuron communications are actually very slow. And as one research report discussed recently, that information can travel through only 200 serial calculations in a single second. So, you say, that just means we need to do many things in parallel, right? 
That's true, but even that's not the whole story. If we truly recalculated every single event we deal with every time, even all the parallel processing the computer offers us wouldn't be enough for us to get in the remote vicinity of the ball in the example I've depicted, let alone make Wimbledon something other than watching two people fall over a lot as they miscalculate where they're going. So something else, something big and different, is going on. And although the basis for the solution has been around for over 25 years, and goes back to work by a Mr. Gerd Williker and Mr. T. Cahonan. It is, in fact, the man who co-founded Palm Computing, Jeff Hawkins, who is now bringing it to reality in his new company, Numenta. The concept involves, first of all, a complete rethinking about how the human mind records and maps information received through its various senses. In Hawkins' description, each of the traditional five senses, vision, taste, hearing, touch, and smell, are mapped simply and actually have quite a bit in common. They all effectively sense data in a spatial field and are both sensed and recorded in memory with these spatial coordinates and a timestamp as another coordinate. If this sounds like a bit of a stretch for some of the senses, consider that even hearing and taste are actually sensed by individual sensors with unique sensing capabilities. Many of us, in fact, were taught in science class of the map of the tongue with the different sensing areas for salty, sour, sweet, and other tastes. The nose works in much the same way, touch clearly does, and the eye's retinal sensors are even easier to understand. So, guess what? Just in managing the senses themselves, we actually have the basis for a reduced instruction set computer model that can process all the sensory data with basically the same simple computing architecture. Hawkins' model suggests that the brain does just that, and that the entire neocortex makes its calculations in a uniform manner. So, unlike complex instruction set architectures that might have to shuffle tough stuff to specific microprocessors, any part of the brain can deal with anything literally thrown at it in parallel. Well, what exactly is it that our brains are calculating? The new brain models are based on the concept that what we're doing is trying to find an associate map between what we're sensing from the outside and what is already stored inside our human computer. To do that efficiently, a first key is for the memories that are stored to be logged with fairly simple search keys, and here's where that reduced instruction set analogy I mentioned before is also a significant value to the overall design. Imagine if you had to Google your brain for every search and compare every set of letters put in the search engine. That's not what happens, thank goodness. But even that reduced instruction set approach isn't enough. And the next part of the model is that memories are stored in a hierarchical structure based on value to the individual, uniqueness, and learned associations so that you can more easily retrieve what is most relevant to you and your world at any given point in time. And don't forget, you can also rearrange that hierarchical structure every time new data is received and interpreted. And even further, we apparently store information in sequences rather than just as pieces of data, so that once you've extracted it from the first part of a memory, all the other stuff that's connected with it pours out right after it. It's also part of why a favorite song from the past may evoke so many other memories. And it's also why the tennis player's associative map of all the different solutions played out in the past can be called up as a sequence of memories to consider. But, you know, even all this isn't enough, because every situation is unique, you say. A good tennis player adapts to the situation, even if she has never seen it before, right? Exactly right. And that's where the final major part of the computing puzzle comes in. On a macro basis, when you are faced with having to do something you've never done before, you draw from your experience, make a best guess, and then go from there, I would guess. 
such as when you're driving to work and a road you would normally have followed is torn up for road repairs, and you have to navigate a detour through territory you've never seen. You mentally put a map in your head of where you are, guess at how the roadway might work, and make your way around the obstacles and back to where you wanted to be in the first place. In Hawkins' model, we actually do that on a split-second basis as well, first by pulling up the map of the closest approximation to what we're perceiving now out of our own memories, and then by overlaying our current sensing information on the past map, we elastically stretch the stored memory sequences to predict what we need to do in the current situation. All at the same time, we're telling our body to move and to get to that ball we're trying to hit. What are the implications of these new models for how the brain operates? For computing, it has already launched research into an entirely new way for artificial intelligence to operate, using the concepts of sensory mapping, sequential and hierarchical data storage, and predictive decision-making to increase the effective power of any computational system. That's the basis, in fact, of the new startup Numenta, launched by Jeff Hawkins and his Palm Computing co-founder Donna Dubinsky. You can find them at www.numenta.com. For us as human beings, one conclusion of all this is that what we think of as intelligence is probably a very different thing than what we thought of in the past and may have enormous implications on how we think about our evolutionary history as well as how to leverage the tremendous brain power we have been given in this age. True intelligence may, in fact, be more about memory and how we utilize it in conjunction with our senses than about absolute computational power. The implications of that, about how learning does and could happen in more effective ways, how we manage and train our predictive capabilities, and how our human will can leverage the new powers we just might unleash for ourselves, are truly mind-boggling. That's our show for this week. If you have the opportunity, please do share your thoughts on these new strategic innovations on our blog at blog.stranova.com. And, as always, thanks for listening. Like in the story you've just heard, determining what strategic paths your company could and should follow requires a detailed mapping of the business ecosystem you work within, an understanding of your options for and capabilities to maneuver within that system, and the insightful links to predict the best future strategic options you should consider to move your company's strategic efforts forward. We at Stranova offer consulting and strategic innovation resource services to help your company do just that and take your company to the next level of performance. If you'd like to learn more, with engagement options ranging from a rapid response assessment of your current strategic approaches all the way to a full business mapping solution, please contact us at ideas at stranova.com. In the next of our interviews with strategic innovators, our guest is Vice Admiral Conrad Lautenbacher, the administrative head of the U.S. National Oceanographic and Aerospace Administration, talking about the Global Earth Observation System of Systems, an ambitious and critically important plan to link together many of the world's Earth-based and airborne sensing systems to monitor the Earth's vital signs on a real-time basis. Please join us for this very important interview when it goes live on Sternova on March 27th. If you have comments on this week's show or suggestions for topics or guests for future shows, please contact us by email at ideas at sternova.com at our Sternova comment line at 1-408-849-4394 or via Skype by clicking on the link on our homepage. You can also join in our conversation by connecting with us on our Sternova blog by clicking the link on our homepage or going directly to blog.sternova.com. 
We look forward to your thoughts and the growing dialogue we're building on the intersection of strategy and innovation. This recording is copyright 2006 by Brad Redderson, and this is Brad Redderson thanking you for joining us this time at Stranova Strategic Edge.